grateful for those who lead us in worship each week and uh, prepare their hearts to lead our hearts in worship. This has been a, a good morning already with the words that we've sung, and I'll come back to a, a few of those words a little bit later. Uh, if you're new to us or it's been a little while since you've been here, we're in the midst of a larger series called Rooted, where we're talking about the seeds, the fundamentals of faith that we desire to see grow up into great oaks that will last through generations. We want to pass on this faith of the gospel uh, to those who come after us. And uh, Christmas, we began uh, with the first symbol of the series, the downward arrow. We talked about the, the incarnation, the story of God coming to earth in the person of Jesus and uh, living out the flesh and blood of good news as Jesus came to earth. And now, uh, this Sunday, we're beginning a six-week conversation uh, about the cross, about the decision of Jesus not just to come and show us a certain way of life, but to put it on display with His own body. Uh, And so we're going to look at this over the next few weeks, uh, a series focused on the death of Jesus. But there's no doubt as we look at the death of Jesus, as we look at the cross, the ultimate example that is, that this is also a look into our own mortality. A look into our own uh, taking up our cross and following Jesus with these many deaths that happen all of the way in our lives. Uh, and so, uh, happy Valentine's Day, everyone, as we begin this series. Uh, I do want to give good news, and good news is to come. We will follow up this series with a series on the resurrection, with a series talking about life. What I'm grateful about at Greenville Oaks is this is a church that on Easter Sunday we celebrate the resurrection. And for some of you, you grew up in churches where you made sure not to preach a sermon about the resurrection on Easter Sunday. We do that. But one of the things that I think we can take a further step into when it comes to the good news of Jesus is my belief is the more we are able to walk into Good Friday and settle into the story of the death of Jesus, the more so we'll be able to step into the life of Jesus and celebrate that good news on Easter Sunday. So that's not exactly good news for the next six weeks because we have some hard conversations to have, but you can't have resurrection without a death. And that's true not just for Jesus. Our hope is that one day God will restore and resurrect all of us. Amen? But there's sometimes, at least for those who don't see Jesus come on earth, it's going to mean for all of us looking at our own mortality as well. Uh, Let's begin with a prayer this morning, and then we'll enter more into this conversation. God, I I ask today that in the midst of these conversations about the cross, about what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus, and and, and what it means to look into our mortality and the reality that each one of us will face, God, would you allow us a, a comfort and a peace in the midst of what can be a troubling conversation? But at the same time, we want to be a church that as much as we walk into the death of Jesus, we want to celebrate the resurrection. So in the midst of that tension, God, would you find us? Would you remind us of the good news of this story? And would you remind us what it means to follow Jesus exactly as he lived? May that be good news for our community in this time as well. This morning, God, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ be formed in our hearts. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Well, uh, i got to tell you, one of the most humbling experiences in my life has been uh, parenting children. Can I get an amen from anyone? I mean, you walk into this, and they give you books on this kind of thing, but those don't prepare you, am I right? And uh, so there's always these moments in this journey of having kids that I'm humbled again. I, you know, our first child was one of those book babies, if you know what I mean. You can read the book, and basically he's going to follow just 
how it should look, right, with a kid. And so we built a lot of confidence in that first kid. But second kid comes along and is like breaking every rule there was. And so you've got to relearn this parenting thing, and it's humbling every time. One of the most humbling moments for me happens once a day. It happens uh, right about that time that we settle into bed for the night. We have our, our prayers, and, and we say a prayer with our kids. And, and then there's this amazing thing that happens. There's these tactics about delaying bedtime that our parent, our kids know. They, I don't know if they know it automatically or if in children's classes they're teaching these things or what, but... But I just imagine it at bedtime, my, kid, you know, my son goes into the closet right after he's brushed his teeth before I come in the room, and, and he's got this list, the top 100 ways to lay bedtime. And uh, each night he either highlights it if it works so he can go back to it, or he crosses it off the list if it doesn't. And, and one of his favorite tactics is a tactic that I call the great mysteries of life tactic. Your child done this to you? Like we put him down for bed and and, and, and we say our prayers, and then I'm walking out of the room, and right before I get there, he says uh, some kind of great life mystery that I'm not possibly going to be able to answer in five minutes. It's going to be a long conversation. And there's two favorites, those questions that Maddox, our oldest, has started to ask over the last year. One of those questions about the great mysteries of life comes down to human origins. Where do we come from, Dad? Where did I come from, Dad? That's one of the questions that he likes to go to. But another of the questions that he likes to ask has something to do with the entirely, entire different spectrum of life. He's asked a lot over the last year about, Dad, what, where is all this headed? What does the end look like? What can we expect? Because grand, your, your grandparents, they're not here anymore. And, and so where did they go? And I don't know if you are used to these questions with your kids as well. But these are the questions that we sort through and we settle through. And it's, all, it's never in the car on the drive time. It's never around the dinner table. It's always this tactic at bedtime, but they're real questions he's asking, certainly questions that I want to be able to sort through with him. And so we have these important conversations. And I got to tell you, Maddox is not the first child to ever ask these questions. In fact, for centuries, humans have been asking these two central human questions, questions about where did we come from? What are the origins of all of this? And where is all of this headed? What's the end that we're all working toward? And if you think about cultures and religions, Every single religion has answered these questions in one way or another. Their holy books have some kind of story that tells the story about where it all began and stories about what it looks like when it all ends. And the Bible's no different. So today I want to point out a couple of scriptures as we talk about this series on death. I want to talk about how the Bible talks about these two questions that Maddox is asking, but also the question that every culture and every religion has tried to sort through as well. So the first of these, I want you to open up, if you would, in your Bibles to the first book of the Bible, first chapter, first verses, Genesis chapter 1. And as we read these uh, verses, these different scriptures that I'm going to be pointing to, what I'd like to ask you to do is normally when we uh, do Bible study, some of the great questions that I've been prompted to ask are, what is the Bible saying? What's the truth that's here? And what am I supposed to do with this truth, right? Those are great questions. Keep those questions around. But today I'd like to, you, you to think about a different question. I want you to ask the question, why is this scripture here? Why is it included? Why did God choose to include this? Out of all the things he could have written, out of all the ways he could have started scripture, why this way? And I think it's important as we look at this, because those why questions tell us a lot about the importance. So again, in, in the Gospel of John, John says, look, there are a lot of things I could have said. There's a 
If I were to write everything that happened with Jesus, it would take all the books of the world to try to communicate that. But I've written these so that you may believe. So why is this here? Let's read again. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So I want to say this morning, as, as we talk about origin questions that Maddox is asking, that all great religions are asking, it's no different in Scripture. From the very beginning of Scripture, it's trying to answer that question. And with the first three words of Scripture, in the beginning, what happened? Where did this all come from? That's a key question that Genesis 1 is trying to answer. And it tells a specific story about a God who loves us, a God who speaks the world into existence. But as we read on in chapters 2 and 3, we see another question that Scripture is trying to explain for us. Genesis 3, we'll get to in a moment, tells the story of Adam and Eve and a fruit and a serpent. And that story is a story that's been told for for centuries now. What is this story about? Some see it as a story about how did sin enter into the world. So this story kind of explains that, right? I think that's one good way to read it. But I think there's more, a more primary question that Genesis 3 is trying to help us sort through. Do you remember why Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden? Let's go back and look at it. It's Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. We read first the commands of God to Adam. It says there, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you'll certainly die. Eat from any tree in the garden, he says. But what's the consequence if they choose to eat from this one tree that's off limits? You will certainly, what? Certainly die. As the story goes on in chapter 3, we read on about what happens with this command. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you'll die. You'll certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent challenges God's truth that he shares with Adam in chapter 2. What's the consequence there? If you eat this, you'll certainly die. But the serpent comes in and says, are you sure about that? Certainly you'll not die. And this is what the evil one does. This is what evil's up to in the world is whatever God's truth is. It's to spin it just a little bit to say, uh, yeah, if you really listen to what God was saying, he didn't mean exactly that. What he meant was this. So the serpent uh, sets up this kind of thing, but the the command of God is opposite what the serpent's saying in this story. So Genesis 3, after they take of the fruit, of course, they're banished from the garden. They're no longer partake of the the tree of life that's supposed to provide this life for a lifetime. Now death enters into the world. And so this story in Genesis 3 is a story about how sinners enters into the world. But I think if we're listening to the questions that Maddox is asking and the central questions of human history, the question in Genesis 3 that's being answered is not so much about sin, it's about how does death enter into the world. So you've got the story in Genesis 1 about origins, about where we come from. You've got the story in Genesis 3 about how death enters into the world. And these are the two central questions that so many of us are wondering and asking. These are the great mysteries that religions have been trying to answer for centuries. 
Now, back to this good news, the gospel, the frame of Jesus. Okay, let's step out of Genesis and back to the story of Jesus. If I were to ask most Christians the question, uh, where, what did Jesus come to die for? Why did he have to die and be resurrected? What was that all about? The, the, the response I most often would get to a question I think like that would be to save us from our sins, right? That's, a, that's an excellent answer. Of course, this is a huge part because we're separated from God by our sin and to restore relationship, somehow that sin had to be atoned for. And so, of course, at the cross, this happens. But there are several places in Scripture that would say there's actually more than just sin that's being atoned for in the story. The story of the cross does more than just that. And, and so I want to take you to a different Scripture today to look at something else that's going on with the cross that I think is important in this conversation over the next few weeks. This passage is really a central passage for the series that I'm about to start, that I'm starting today. This is Hebrews chapter 2. If you turn with me to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. This has really shaped me in the last couple of years, this passage of Scripture. It says this, Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 14. The writer of Hebrews says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So how does the writer of Hebrews talk about what Jesus and the cross does for us? He talks about this phrase that's really fascinating, being held in slavery to the fear of death. Now, you'll notice if you look in, in your handout that the title of the sermon is The Old Ball and Chain. This is not a marriage sermon this morning, okay? This is a reference back to Hebrews chapter 2. The the situation that humans are in, we are bound, we are in slavery, not to death itself, we're in slavery to the fear of death. Again, the great mystery, what does it look like? Uh, What's the end going to be all about? Where is this all headed? So many of us, if we were to look underneath the subconscious of what we're dealing with, so much of our sin, so much of our struggle in life, I believe is comes back to what Hebrews 2 is trying to say, that we are in slavery to the fear of death. And so God enters into the world in the person of Jesus. And when he dies on the cross and he's resurrected, what Hebrews 2 is saying is, Christ came to actually defeat the enemy. The enemy is the devil, but what's the power that the devil holds? The power of death. The power of the fear of death that he uses in our lives for all kinds of things. And what Jesus did is he came to defeat that enemy. He came to defeat the devil. But more than that, he came to defeat death itself. And I want you to identify this, that so often in our lives, we've seen sin as the big struggle, that God's come to help us overcome sin. I want to affirm that with everything I can do to affirm that. But I want to say more than that, God also comes in the person of Jesus to free us from death that's inevitable now that Genesis 3 has become a reality in our lives. And I want to point to a couple of scriptures that talk about the enemy in a similar way. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a key passage about the resurrection. We'll come back to this uh, in the next uh, couple of months. 1 Corinthians 15, and identify the enemy that Paul talks about in this passage. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25. For he, talking about Jesus, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Drop down uh, in that chapter to verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying uh, that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. 
Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Paul personifies death as this enemy that's at work in our lives. Paul's saying when Jesus resurrected from the dead, he changed all this. Now no longer is death this inevitable conclusion that's the end of all things. No, no, no. Death one day is going to be defeated. At the end of Scripture in Revelation, I want to point to a similar passage that talks about our enemy again. Revelation chapter 20 at the very end. So now we've gone from Genesis 1 all the way to the last few chapters in Scripture. This is Revelation chapter 20, verse 13. The vision that John gives to us, it says, there, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. This is a vision of one day. Death is going to be no more. It's going to be thrown into the, uh, the lake of fire. One day, this is the hope that we have. And then if you'll drop down to chapter 21, verse 4, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You see, while sin is a problem in our lives today, and Jesus came to defeat that, there's another power at work in our lives that wreaks all kind of havoc if we're not careful. We're in slavery to the fear of death if we don't acknowledge it. And what Jesus came to do is not just outlast the powers of sin or to make sure that we're forgiven. He came to defeat death itself. So much so that Paul, in his writing, is willing to taunt death and say, listen, death, where is your victory? Right now we feel the pangs of death, don't we? We feel it in an obvious way in our lives. But the clock is ticking on death's power. One day when Christ returns, this last symbol that we're going to talk about later in the series, the hope is that death is going to be no more. And so in light of all this that I've shared in terms of origins and about the ending of all things, about death being the enemy, I want you to listen one more time to Hebrews chapter 2 in verse 15. Let's read this again. And free, what did Jesus come to do? To free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I want to ask you this morning, I, I, I know death is one of those things we try not to think about. In our culture, we do everything we can to push it aside, to move on with our lives. It's part of the only way we can learn to handle and, and kind of deal with our lives. Just kind of put that away and, and do all we can to kind of live our life without that thought around us. But what Hebrews is saying is no matter how far you try to push that aside, this slavery is a reality. This fear of death that it kind of sits under us in the, in the subconscious. It works in ways we, can't, we, we need to learn to imagine it. We need to learn to work through this or it's going to continue to wreak havoc in our lives to not see that Jesus is defeating the very thing that Satan is trying to hold over. My goal at the end of this series is that more of us can experience the freedom Jesus came to bring to acknowledge that death is a reality in our world, but one day it's going to be no more. We'll get to resurrection in a few weeks, but it's important that we settle into this series. It's important that we see what happened on the cross of Jesus. So I want us to think about this. If death is the enemy, and, and, or if the, if the devil's the enemy and, and, and uses this power of death, then what are the ways that we try to deal with this enemy? How do we deal with enemies in our world? And if you think about our world, the most common way you hear people talk about enemies, if you think about your own enemies, if you think about enemies of the United States, the main way that we tend to think about defeating enemies is by overpowering them, isn't it? 
even killing our enemies. If we could just wipe them off the face of the earth, we no longer have to deal with this evil. If we could just rid the world of the evil, then all of a sudden the good people could go on living. And that's been tried, hadn't it? And here we still stand. And so we try to overpower. And this, wasn't, this isn't just a 20th or 21st century strategy for dealing with enemies. It's been this way from the very start. Israel itself, as they're trying to establish themselves as a nation, they have to overpower others that are in the land that God has promised them. And it's hard to sort through all those stories exactly with what God seems to be up to. But we see this trying to kill others, trying to overpower others so the enemies can be removed and that the people of God can move on. And if you look back at the story of Genesis, you see this power, this tactic of dealing with the enemy of death at work. In Genesis chapter 4, the story comes about Cain and Abel. Many of you probably heard this story before. They're the first brothers in the world, right, with Adam and Eve as the children. And they end up killing one another. Cain ends up killing Abel. And it's all over this sacrifice, this misunderstanding of what God receives as acceptable. Well, if you think about the slavery of death, part of the slavery of death is this sense of we want to have significance in the world. We want something that's going to last past when we go into the grave. That's part of how we deal with that anxiety about uh, the death that's inevitable among us. And then in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, that's great. Build up your work. Do all you can to have significance. But your son's going to waste it one day, so you might as well not try that route. Ecclesiastes deals with a lot of this when it comes to the slavery of death. Well, in Genesis chapter 4, we see this story where Cain kills his brother Abel, but the story just escalates in trying to overpower uh, death as the enemy. Genesis 4, I want to read as, as, the, as, as the violence continues. This is in uh, chapter 4, verse 23. We read the story of Cain's grandson. His name is Lamech, and this is what the story says. This is Genesis 4, verse 23. Lamech says to, said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech. Hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. Again, this is a story about generational sin, perhaps. This is also a story about civilization and how things get out of control. We think we can overpower enemies. Cain's sin is, is, is so great at the start, but violence just continues to grow on the earth. And in the story of the flood in chapter 6, this is what we read about God's reason for stepping in and the reason for the flood that falls. This is six, uh, Genesis 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. The earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both, both them and the earth. See, it's natural to want to defeat an enemy in this way. But how do you defeat the enemy when the enemy isn't a person and the enemy isn't something that's tangible? The enemy that we see in Genesis 3 is death. How do you put an end to death? Can death be put to death? Can you kill death? Not exactly. It just kind of plays into the cycle of what death does. How do you defeat death? Well, that way's been tried. But I've got to tell you, there are other ways that we try to deal with our death anxiety, to deal with this slavery to the fear of death. And one of those ways in American culture in the 21st century is not to overpower death. That's been tried, and we can see through that a bit. But one of the ways we try to deal with it is we try to ignore death. In fact, we have entire industries that have been built on trying to avoid and ignore death as the enemy. Uh, the food industry, for instance, right? I'm grateful that I can go to a restaurant, and I don't have to go out and kill an animal and go through the whole process that some of you who are hunters go through on a regular basis. 
I mean, just, just a century ago, some of you grew up on farms. You had to pick your own you know, fruits and vegetables, and then you ate those. You saw the process of things dying so that we might have life. This is the rhythm of the world, isn't it? Death provides life for others. So an animal dies, and then we eat that animal, but we're removed from the process. We don't see the process in the same way that used to be seen centuries ago. Basically, the food industry, what it's done is remove that death reminder every time we eat that would have been so common and obvious for many of you who grew up in an earlier generation. Not an, an, an awful thing the food industry is doing. I'm grateful for it, but what it's doing is it's removing it from us this vision so we're able to ignore the death that happens all the time so that we can live. Think about the funeral industry for a moment. I'm grateful for the, the professionals who do a great job of caring for families, who do a great job of caring for those who die. But years ago in our houses, we had in the front room something that was called a parlor. And that parlor was the place where when a family member died in the bed in the house, uh, they would be placed and, and the family would care for that body and would do everything that was needed so that when friends and relatives came in, uh, they would be able to, to kiss this, uh, this person on the forehead. They would be able to stroke their hair. But this all happened in the home. And now a funeral parlor is in the house. It's now at a funeral home. And we actually changed the name of our front rooms from parlors to living rooms because it's the place of the living and not the dead. I'm grateful for these services, but i got to tell you, this changes the way we deal with death when people don't die at home, when they die in the hospital, and then they go to the funeral home. It's great to be able to walk in, but part of this is our slavery to the fear of death that we're learning to deal with by ignoring it. Years ago, on your way to church, if you would have walked to the city square, you would have walked into the door of church and probably you would have walked by some tombstones because the cemeteries would have been right by those churches. And it would have been a reminder every time you walked in the doors of that church that your life is but a mist. And one of these days, you're going to have two dates with a dash in between. And it's also a chance for you to remember the lives of saints who were in the past. But what have we done now? Those, those cemeteries are often in other places, kind of away from the highway a bit. Or, but if you still go to some cities in Europe, if you go to Washington, New York City, in fact, right across from Ground Zero, there was a church that did an incredible act of mercy and love for the firefighters and those who were wounded. It was one of the only buildings that was working on that day because they were allowing this to be a place where uh, the, the workers came and were cared for for days on end. And right outside of that cathedral is a graveyard with the names of people who attended that church. And when I think about that, I, I think about the fact that we've professionalized death to where we no longer really have to come in contact with it. And it's a way of avoiding the inevitable that comes true in our lives. There's so many industries I can name from plastic surgery to, to diet and exercise taken to obsessions to hair dye and tweezers, anybody? We still believe in the fountain of death. It just looks a little different than what Ponce de Leon was originally looking for. But, but if we pay attention to the life of Jesus, it's possible for us to learn another way to deal with death. Because Jesus didn't try to overpower death. He didn't try to kill death. And he also didn't ignore death. He knew where he was headed. It was the disciples that couldn't take what he was telling them about where they were going. So how did Jesus defeat death? Maybe we ought to look at this if we're going to learn healthier ways ourselves. He does the most counterintuitive thing. In fact, it comes from the passage we read just a little bit ago. Hebrews 2. Verses 14 and 15. Pay attention again. How does Jesus deal with death? How does he try to overcome this enemy? Since the children have flesh and blood, 
he too shared in their humanity. And why? So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. See, Jesus does the opposite of what we try to do. We try to overcome enemies. And Jesus knows you can't overcome death by trying to defeat death. Death's not going to die on its own. And he knows that you can't ignore death because death is an inevitability. We all have to sort through this as difficult as it is in our lives. And for some of us this morning, this is a more difficult conversation than for others, isn't it? Because we're dealing with loved ones who are walking through this last stage of life. We're dealing with parents and trying to come up with how do we have this conversation about uh, what's next in their lives. And we don't really know how to sort through that. It's awkward to have these conversations. It's awkward to start a series on death on Valentine's Day, right? But this is a conversation that is so important. And resurrection means so much more when you walk through the reality of this situation. Jesus doesn't try to overcome death. Jesus doesn't ignore death. What Hebrews 2 tells us is it was by His death that He broke the power of death. In other words, Jesus submitted to death. But when he submitted to death, you know what else he was submitting to? He was submitting to the power of God to raise him from the dead. The only thing that happens when you try to overcome death is death just kind of gets on this cycle and more and more death and more and more violence and more and more difficulty come. But no one had tried this route that Jesus tried. He gives up his life. He has a struggle in the garden, you'll remember. But he gives up. We sang these lyrics earlier in the song. Christ is risen. Christ is risen from the dead. And how? Trampling over death by death. This is the thing that had never been tried. It's the only thing that would work because God himself was the one who was going to raise Jesus from the dead. But it took trust from Jesus. Last few weeks and months, I've been trying to have some conversations with some doctors. Doctors who deal with hospice and end-of-life issues. With people, I've had several conversations, and here's the question I've been most interested to find out the answer from them about. When you deal with patients and families that are walking through end-of-life decisions, are Christians any better at this whole dying thing than those who don't have a belief system? And the response of these doctors was kind of surprising to me. He said, well, usually it's just about the same, really. But if I was going to say anything, they actually are a little worse at it than those who aren't believers. And it shocked me. There's a lot of reasons I could talk about today for why that is the answers I was given. One of those reasons was, well, they believe in the power of God to heal, and so they believe in this miracle that's going to happen. And they make doctors do far more than doctors should do when they should be giving a a, a dignity of life to hospice care that should be given. So they keep them on the machine when it should be a different way. Part of it's not so much that we want the right things for our family members. We don't want to lose them. A part of it isn't so much the one who's dying. It's the people who are hanging on who haven't dealt with their own death anxiety and can't just let the good news of resurrection allow to be happened for their family. Church, I believe that we ought to be better than anyone else at this whole dying thing. Because we don't live as those who have no hope. 
And I'm not saying this is an easy process. All of us walk through this process. And over the next few weeks, we'll talk about how we walk through this in better ways, healthier ways. We engage in conversations with our families. Again, this is difficult. This is not dinner room conversation. And some of you are wondering why the preacher's doing this on Valentine's Day. But I'm here to tell you, we ought to be better at this. We ought to be practiced in walking others through this process in their lives. We need chaplains who are going to help us discover how to do this better. We need to follow the advice of doctors who are saying, have that conversation with your family about what they really want, not so much about what you want in these matters. And in the end, this isn't so much about death. It's about life. This is not the end for us who are believers, church. And it's time for us to believe that with our whole hearts. Over the next few weeks, uh, this may be a difficult conversation, especially for some of you that are walking through some hard decisions with family. Maybe you've gotten a diagnosis and you're struggling to walk through this. You realize that slavery to the fear of death is real for you. And maybe some of you need to have a conversation just over the next few weeks about where you are in your relationship with God because we as a church want you walking toward that point in life with the most confidence you can possibly have, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. So if we can aid you in any spiritual conversations about where you are with God, please let us do that with you. Engage that in your connecting point groups. Engage that with our prayer partners in the back after service if you'd like to have that conversation. Find me and I'll find time this week. We want to make sure that everybody here feels confident, not in what you've done, but in what Jesus has done. But a secondary matter. Sometimes we talk about mental health in a very glib way. We don't acknowledge that it's a real issue in people's lives. And I know there are those of you that struggle with seasonal affective disorder, for instance. Or maybe you deal with depression in a specific way. I just want to let you know, we want to help you through that because this can be a difficult conversation that brings up all kinds of feelings and thoughts. And it's not that we can all handle that within the church. There may be some who can help in greater ways than others. But we'd love to refer you and find places where you can find health and stability. And so don't let this series take you off in a a way that you don't need to go. Help us, let us help you engage in this conversation. Let's not deny it and be in slavery. Because the old ball and chain is there. Many of us are living in slavery to the fear of death, and it must not be so anymore. Christ is risen from the dead. He's defeated death. It's time is ticking. So may we be a people who live with confidence. Confidence that death is not the end. And I'm excited to celebrate that with you in just a few weeks. Let's pray as we close our time. Father, I thank you for the way Scripture doesn't play as propaganda. The way Scripture reveals the dirty, nitty-gritty truth about our world. I thank you for the lament psalms like Psalm 88 and others that don't necessarily give resolution but cry out in the midst of trouble and suffering. God, we confess that far too often in our services, we sing like this is Disney when really the world is so different. God, we repent of that. We repent of the ways that we give easy solutions for people who are dealing with difficult matters. We repent of the ways that we live in slavery to the fear of death and ignore death. But we also want to live with an ever-present sense that you care for us, you love us, and that you've prepared a place for, for us. If it were not so, you would have told us. And so we thank you for that, God, that death is not the end, that death can be taunted because in the end, uh, it's not going to be the last word. It gets thrown in the lake of fire with all the rest of death's friends. 
And so God, today in the midst of where we stand, I pray for those who are sorting through difficult matters with family and friends, and may you give them the peace and the comfort and the words and just the right touch, God, to have the conversations that are needed. God, for those of us who are young in life and death's not something we think about all that often, would you allow us, God, not to be in slavery for years and years because we haven't thought about these matters. May we not be stuck in a death cycle. May we not be stuck in a, a cycle of sitting where there is no hope, but may we turn our sights upward to heaven, God. May we, we turn our sights toward the light that is the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May we leave these doors with hope this morning. Hope not in what we've done, but because of what you've done. And we thank you for that gift, God. We can't do this on our own. We cannot establish our salvation. We can't make you proud. You have already are proud of us. You love us, and that's why you've given the gifts you have. So, God, we give thanks today for those gifts, for salvation for the Holy Spirit, for the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, for the patience we need in difficult matters. God, would you come more and more and plant that fruit in our lives? Now this morning, would we not leave any conversations unsaid that we need to have? Would we feel a confidence in you? Would you prompt people to to want more and more to walk closely with your son, Jesus? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.